And we are live. All right, everybody. This is episode 38 of the Beef and Bitcoin podcast with your host, Brett and CH. Today, we've got a quick episode to go through. I, uh, I saw a tweet the other day that I thought was an interesting topic kind of to riff on for, for a few minutes. Touch on that. A lot, of, uh, a lot of news going on over the weekend. It is Sunday, August 25th. Futures markets also just opened. Um, looks like gold is on the move. Uh, the yuan is also on the move. Silver's on the move, which is really interesting. And we're going to try to record another episode uh, post-mortem on uh, tomorrow being Monday. And we'll try to get that out quickly so you guys can uh, kind of get our half-baked take on what transpired from tonight over into tomorrow but other than that man how you doing good it's just like as we keep saying like things are just getting really interesting and the charts are screaming like uh you know you just like as raul was saying like there's just so many different things going on right now and a lot of people are just not aware of it um like the, the china tensions the hong kong issues um Markets in turmoil. I don't think they ran a markets in turmoil on Friday. So we haven't seen all the bottom yet. Yeah, yeah. I'm referring Friday. to CNBC, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Friday was interesting. A lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of FinTwit kind of gave their take on what's going to happen over the weekend. And then Monday, Tuesday, some people were a little doom and gloomish. Um, it's hard because every time I feel doom and gloomish, like we pump the next day and I'm always wrong. So I, I don't even care to speculate on it anymore because I'm I'm very rarely right. Uh, maybe in the long term, we'll both be right about this. Right. You know, we can kind of see what's. Yeah. You know, eventually the, the bears are always right, um, like eventually, I guess. Uh, but they're but they're wrong the rest of the time. But that's OK, because it is it is fun trying to kind of see this play out. And it is interesting because. Um, the, the, the bubbles that we see around us are, are extraordinary and fueled a lot by, um, government, government debt, which is very interesting when you think about a parallel financial system starting to be built, right? You know, Bitcoin's been around for 10 years, you know, that's great. It's still a drop in the bucket, but you can see people have, been seeing these warning signs for the last decade and now we're thinking you know it might be a good idea to take a step back and think about how we can do this differently uh the next time around and it looks like the next time around is pretty fucking close um just for yeah. lack of a better term <laughs> Dude, like, I, like, really I don't know is. how else to put it like it really it really it, feels close now it's like you feel like you're at, in this debt super cycle and yeah. it's so obvious to so many people who have done their due diligence and done their homework on 2001, 2008, and now today, and the bubble's bigger this time, um, wealth inequality is, is, is worse, although more people are always obviously lifted out of poverty, the, the, the gap can get wider, um, which is unfortunate, and you know that's always going to happen, but hopefully as this system gets replaced with something better, um, each bubble will kind of happen on its own. Um, but that gets into the the biggest part in the whole equation. Uh, last episode, we talked about essentially the U.S. dollar losing its reserve currency status. And it seems to be like central bankers are now making the case that that very well could happen. You know, don't expect the U.S. dollar to be the world's reserve currency for the next hundred years. It's 
it's actually pretty highly unlikely that that were to be the case. So what happens between now and then? And our good buddy Paul Graham had a very interesting tweet uh, a few few days ago. And I, you know, this is what we really wanted to riff on. So uh, what do you think? You want me to read this really quick? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I'll, I'll read this tweet and then we'll kind of go through it piece by piece and talk through a few things. Okay. If the potential of a startup is proportionate to the size times the incompetence of its competitors, the most promising startup of all would be one that competed with national governments. It's not impossible. This is what cryptocurrencies do. That's a lot. I mean, one sentence, but there's a lot to unpack there. And, uh, you know, we'll go through it piece by piece. But, you know, just after hearing that at first, what's your immediate response to that? Um, you know, as he talks about, you know, he's comparing basically, the, you know, what's going on here is an incompetence. He's referring to government. And then the size of that incompetence is in the tens, if not hundreds of trillions of dollars, basically, as he's saying. It's a really big, it's national governments. And then you think about debt. There's a lot, there's a lot to deal with here. There's going to be a huge, there's something big is coming in terms of what he's talking about transition wise, whether it's cryptocurrencies, whether it's like gold or going back gold, silver, et cetera. I don't know what, but something big is happening here. The current system is um, just barely getting along. Like I, I don't know the correct term for it, but we are just barely getting along here. And when it goes, something has to replace it. You need that for global trade, you know, and so we'll right. find out pretty shortly here. Right. And I think you you really nailed it with when you think about the size of what we're talking about, it is in the tens to hundreds of trillions uh, of dollars of uh, debt, of all assets, of you know physical money, of monetary metals. Uh, we're really talking a significant size here. And I think- Think about it. Whole nations, yeah. militaries. I mean, there's so it's, much. It's there's insane. so many random right. things we can we can go along. You know, public infrastructure, etc. There's so much stuff. Right. Um, and I, and I think the one thing Paul alluded to it. He didn't necessarily come out and say it. He does when he says, you know, this is what cryptocurrencies do. Is that the only institutions on the planet today who have a monopoly on the production of money are national governments. I mean, period. So. That's what it really all comes down to. And then once you have a monopoly on money, you can you can afford to just do whatever you want after the fact. So and the size of that has grown exponentially in the last hundred years. Uh, you know, I was listening to something earlier today and they were talking about the the progressiveness of maybe 200 or 150 years ago. They couldn't imagine they would be thrilled with the size of the state today. Right. I mean, it is just absolutely massive how it has grown in size and um, arguably made things uh, not so good for the for the individual, which is which is where, you know, Bitcoin and sort of fits into that. And you say, OK, well, if you can have a totally separate and parallel economic system that is uh, the production of money. How humongous is that opportunity? And I think it's underestimated by a lot of people, even even me. Like I'm as bullish as you can get, and I I still think I probably underestimate what that looks like. Um, and only hindsight will will tell us if that ends up ultimately being correct. But the the next part of the the tweet that I kind of wanted to get into was the fact that he said it's not impossible, and that to me is 
the ultimate crux of the argument for a lot of people. And I get a lot of DMs from people who are uh, new to the space or they've been in for a little while and they're still trying to, you know, wrap their mind around everything. And you can really see a lot of people have it stuck in their head. The last part of the argument when you start talking about Bitcoin is, well, are they going to really let it happen? Right. That's what you that's the the flash straw of the argument. Well, there's no way the political elite, the financial elite, whatever, will let that happen, will they? And that's kind of hard to defend against, right? Exactly. Um, there's a big, there's obviously a pretty central interest here. You know, governments, large organizations that have a want for the current system to stay in place. Um, without it, it definitely changes, uh, basically trades, um, you know, power, as you say, to the individual. Um, and it changes things up a lot. And things change drastically different when you actually own your own money. Um, and they can't just print it and do whatever they want with it. That's what we have. That's why you're able to have welfare states. That's why you're able to have prolonged wars, et cetera, because you don't have to pay for it. You can just print for it. It's like you can't, the biggest thing is that there's like $21 trillion that are unaccounted for in Pentagon spending. You're like, where is that money going? And what does that do to your currency? You know, the money goes somewhere. Right. And a lot of people like to think that that's, you know, that's free. Nobody bears the cost of that. But in reality, everyone who uses the currency that's used to pay for those projects, I guess you could say, are not benefiting from that because you're losing purchasing power over the time, over time. And we try to, you know, talk about that because it's, it's like the hidden tax that you can't really see. You, you know, and people tell you, oh, inflation, don't worry, it's a good thing. Well, it, I mean, first of all, it, it's not because things become more expensive and your wages most certainly do not increase um, at a pace to offset the increases in inflation. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. It's um, it's just an interesting thing to to think about when you think about all the other large costs that come around with just fiat money in general. But to get back to Paul's point of it not being impossible, uh, I I thought instantly about Eric Voskel's work on uh, Le Bitcoin, and he has a really nice topic called the Axiom of Resistance. The premise. It's something that can't really be proven. And I think that's what makes Bitcoin so special. And, you know, I'll get into it. So basically, the axiom of resistance is saying you believe that it is actually possible for some sort of system or piece of software to um, successfully resist state control, right? And, uh, your network fully decentralized and a fee market for confirming and validating transactions. So, you know, Satoshi brilliantly combined all these different things um, to give, to put us in a place where there's a set of circumstances where it is actually possible to resist the state. Um, and when you get into that uh, debate with someone on this topic, the immediately default after you've gone through every point is, well, there's just no way they would let it happen. And that is kind of the final piece of the puzzle that needs to be solved, right? And what you're saying is if you're if you're working on Bitcoin or you believe that, 
you believe that it is possible. You know, these are this is the way the software works. Um, it is resistant to that control, and that is why it does work. And if and if you don't believe that's true, if you just think there's just no way possible to to um, let this thing survive, then what you're really talking about is something like a, a Ripple or you know Fedcoin or whatever else. Like, uh, and the default answer would be PayPal, right? If if it still needs approval from the state, then that's not Bitcoin because it's it does not resist state control. And I think uh, Eric nails it. I'm, I want to get your take on this in a second. He talks about how when PayPal was first being built as as Confinity. Um, they originally had attempted to create a system with a similar value proposition to Bitcoin, uh, a money that is native to the Internet, that has no um, uh, that is not given um, legal tender by the state. Right. It, it just is and it, it can work. And they realized that they couldn't solve that problem and they started PayPal. Right. So now you have PayPal on the Web. A lot of people use it. It is fantastic. It, it does make payments on the internet that much better, but it, you're subject to um, all the laws and regulations that come along with that, and your money can be seized, taken, shut down at any time. You can't send um, money via PayPal to things that are deemed wrong or you know wrong think right. You you don't have that power, um, and I think you know. So when you sit and think about Peter Thiel being bullish on Bitcoin and also being part of that PayPal revolution, do you think he sat and studied Bitcoin and looked at it and said, you know, holy shit, this is what we were trying to build 25 years ago? Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, think about that and think about how he's like, shit, I would own everything. <laughs> Dude, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty crazy thought. I mean, you know, difference in a little bit of tech, I guess you could say. Um, the decentralized system versus a centralized system that need the banking system. It's definitely interesting. Um, and where this goes, I don't know. Um, short term is always hard to tell, but like long term, I'm talking next five, 10 years, you're going to see a massive change in the current monetary system we have and probably governmental system. There's, there's a lot of tension globally too, which is also kind of scary. Um, I think we've had a pretty peaceful time for a while. Uh, and there's obviously like Hong Kong's one of the biggest hotspots, obviously the Middle East. Did I send you that thing about um, Israel attacking like Iranian, I think, uh, did. drone bases did. in fucking Syria? I mean, there's just a lot of things that like, you know, uh, someone said it perfectly on Twitter the other, I was reading last night. You know, you don't know if you're going to wake up one morning and there's a hot war going on in the South China Sea or in, um, you know, the Middle East, which is a really scary thought. Um, you know, there's so many different various alliances and that's going to, that would definitely just wreck financial markets for sure. I mean, it'd be hard to, you know, I don't know. It's just the simplest way I can put it. They'd be pretty sad, you know, cause I would just put so much uneasiness in the market. Yeah, it really would. And I think that's, that's what makes all of this so interesting because on, on one hand, it's, it's like really doom and gloom, really scary, super easy to be pessimistic about the whole thing. I mean, it, it really is. If you've, sat and read a handful of, uh, you know, books on history, economics, uh, you did your homework on 2008, 2001, you're sitting here today thinking, man, like this could get pretty ugly if it, if it really does get a lot worse than, um, 
let's say 2008 as an example. And I was pretty pessimistic about it at first until, I guess, until I, I found Bitcoin. And now I'm more optimistic because I think at the very least you have a decent amount of people and that, that number is growing who have seen this before, who take, uh, you know, liberty and private property rights and money, the ethics of money production really seriously. And they want to build a financial system that you could upgrade to voluntarily if you want. And I think you could, you could, um, use gold or silver or whatever else as an example here from in terms of a monetary standpoint, uh, people will voluntarily choose to upgrade to the next thing as the old system goes away. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I, and I suspect many people will do it because nobody's that stupid. You're not going to hold your devaluing currency forever and just say, Oh, don't worry. Like they're going to, the state will take care of me. Things will be fucking fine and dandy. You know, you're always going to have your best interest in mind and you're always going to act in your best interest. And some people find the solution to that problem sooner than others. And I, I think the upgrade to the next thing, um, you know, my, my assumption is it will be, it will be Bitcoin, um, uh, just from a long two years of study. You know, that's, that's kind of my investment thesis. I'm assuming we're going to head in that direction. And that's not to say that, um, anything else might not come back in to play and play a bigger part of that. I mean, you're seeing it today and the last few weeks with, with gold making its move. I, I mean, that just showing you the uncertainty in the markets and people are flocking to that safe haven and Bitcoin by no means is, uh, is a safe haven asset for 99.9% .9 of people. It might be to me because I've spent the last two years of my life jumping down the rabbit hole. So it's a safe haven to me, but it's not for everybody. Um, and that's where you can see that clearly on the screen with, with gold. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's a whole different scenario. Now that, you know, we're starting to see the precious metals of silver and gold respond very positively to all the um, unnerving, you know, tension you see, as I mentioned, Hong Kong, South China Sea. A good example is, um, you know, the Japanese Navy basically is attempting to get their hands on 35 F-35B, um, basically fighter and attack aircraft for their um, amphibious assault carriers because they're worried about China. I mean, there is a lot of tension in the Southeast Asia area. And then you got the Middle East, obviously. Um, and then Hong Kong. Hong Kong, I think, is a, it could be a turning point. You know, if we start seeing, like, serious casualties there, you'll probably see someone like Britain in the U.S. stepping, especially since that was a British colony only 22 years ago. And it really wasn't that long ago. And then you got you to remember there's also a bunch of Westerners there, whether you're talking about Germans, you know, obviously vast amount of Europeans, English, and American people there for finance. Yeah, our good friend uh, Arthur Hayes, mm -hmm. BitMEX, and he just left. He left Hong Kong for a month, month-long holiday, uh, as soon as shit got started kind of getting out of control there. And I think, you know, to bring this back to the to the topic that we're talking about and just um, the fact that it is not impossible to have a free market money and, and uh, have something that can compete with the nation state, Hong Kong's a really good example of – a historically very capitalistic place that exploded and just completely flourished with um, business and prosperity. And that is the exact reason why um, the people of Hong Kong are 
fighting back because they don't want to go back under more of a communist rule of China or they don't want to be extradited and then be disappeared pretty much when they get sent back to mainland China. And that should be a, just a glaring red flag to everyone um, about the dangers and horrors of, you know, communism, socialism type tendencies. And I think that the, the fact that it is not impossible to create a different system is going to become glaringly obvious as some of these smaller nations will start to compete for the best people period. And that could be, um, from a tax standpoint, just from a purely capitalistic standpoint, you know, you have some direct investment into the land or the country. Like if you want to move to the Cayman Islands and buy a million dollar home, they'll give you a passport and you can stay there and um, have a tax advantage way of doing your business. And I don't see there will be some countries who will be like, you know, fuck it. This is what we're going to do. We're going to head in that direction and people will flock there. Um, but that gets into the kind of jurisdictional arbitrage fallacy. Will will you have countries start to compete? I don't know what you think about that. I think you will have some, e even if let's say this is this is really out there. Texas secedes. Okay, they have no income tax. Maybe they have a, a, a low or light property tax, or maybe even tariffs for goods coming into the state. Do you know how many people are going to flock to Texas and just? have the best life ever. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a thought. Um, we think about, you know, there's, you know, areas with no tax just on, on, you know, generally prosper more, you know, people are allowed to, you know, keep their money. Like I think I told, I'm going to mention this last podcast or I know I mentioned to you, like Chicago has a 10, you're basically paying like 10.5% in taxes between all everything that adds up, which is ridiculous. So like hundred dollar purchase, that's a, you know, $110 and 50 cents. And then we think about bigger purchases. You're adding so much onto that. It's a hundred thousand dollar purchase. That's another 10 grand. No. Yeah. It's a lot. And depending upon the state that you live in or country, your tax rate is going to be different. Or 10,500. I mean, it's ridiculous. I was, I was explaining that to somebody the other day. They were talking about, um, you know, oh, college doesn't cost as much in, in Europe because of, uh, you know, it's free. Well, first of all, it's not free. Everybody's paying for it. But when you assume that your tax rate is 50%, and this is kind of what I said, I said, if your tax rate's 50%, what you're actually telling me is from January 1st to the end of June, every dollar that you've made, every hour that you've worked has been handed over to the state or the federal government in that example. And then from July 1st to the rest of the year, you get to keep the rest of your money. And the guy looked at me like, I've never thought about it that way. Like it had never crossed, you never try to, you know, square the circle of my tax rate is 50%. Oh, literally half of every day that I'm working, I have to give up all that money. Nobody ever puts it that way, which is unfortunate because if everybody thought about it that way, the tax rate would be much lower because people would be rioting, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, we saw it with France, the yellow vest protest. A lot of it was based on just the, you know, the, the high taxes. I think I lost you for a sec. All right. Well, that was, uh, that was our quick take and thoughts on, um, Paul Graham's last tweet. Uh, I think the point of the story is, uh, it's not impossible to, to supplant, um, an incumbent money or even an incumbent, uh, you know, government 
it's completely possible. And I think Paul is coming to that conclusion, which is exactly why he said that. And, you know, cryptocurrencies play a, a part in that, and specifically Bitcoin. Um, I think that's important to kind of keep in mind if you're jumping down this rabbit hole and you're still not convinced or you're just not sure that it is even possible, uh, I would suggest keep reading, keep jumping down the rabbit hole, shoot us a DM if you have more questions. There's plenty to read on the subject of how um, different monetary standards have come and gone throughout history and how, how gold was money for a very, very long time. And you know, relatively speaking, fiat is a very short period of time and a lot has happened um, because of fiat, basically. And we're going to see how that, what the end game is and, and how it all ends up turning out. But, you know, thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you like and subscribe on YouTube. Leave us a comment. Shoot us a DM. Follow us on Spotify. Uh, follow us on Twitter, Instagram. Leave us a review. Send us your topics. Thanks again to all the people who've reached out for um, a couple of topic ideas for episodes. Uh, It's great. It really helps us prepare for the next episodes because it lets us know what you guys want us to talk about. So uh, stay safe, stack sats, be careful over the next couple weeks, uh, stay diligent, and uh, thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.